Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, tech expert Bianca Wiley from Digital Public is not a fan of the ArriveCan app, and Bianca tells us why she thinks it's a mistake to keep it. First Nations policy analyst Melissa Mbarki looks at an eventful Assembly of First Nations convention in Vancouver and why an upcoming audit is so important. And former Doctors of BC President Dr. Eric Kadeski looks at the BC government's fall booster plan for COVID vaccines. So let's get started. Just three weeks ago, the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada, Beth Potter, was called upon to testify before a parliamentary committee. This is the Committee on International Trade. And Ms. Potter was warning these people about the ArriveCan app. And here's her direct quote. ArriveCan has not been proven to be the effective tool to stop COVID. It is largely viewed as a hindrance to travel. And it is causing significant delays upon arrival in Canada. Close quote from Beth Potter of the tourism industry. Well, last week, the federal government announced that border measures would be staying exactly the same until at least October. And they said, although we're deeply invested in growing our visitor economy, the pandemic is not over. So let's talk a little bit more about the impact of the Arrive Can app. We're delighted to welcome Bianca Wiley to the program this morning. Bianca joins us from Toronto. She is a technology expert and a partner at Digital Public. Bianca, good morning and thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Tell us a little bit about your reaction to the uh, government of Canada's digging its heels in and saying, nope, the Arrive Can is sticking with us through the summer no matter what. Yeah, not impressed. Um, It really is problematic that this app is here in the first place. So I'd like to take us back to 2020. Okay. When, yeah, when the the government, through emergency powers, okay, like we're in a pandemic. And I do agree from that quote, we are still in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, But in 2020, launched this app, which they said was necessary for public health reasons, right? And there was a lot of clarity on one point, which I want to make. We don't need an app to collect information at the border. So what the government did was they made it seem like, well, we need this mandatory app for a public health reason. Right. But in truth, what we need is information. And we can, you know, we can collect that through the kiosks we have, through forms, through other processes. So I'm not impressed with it. There's a lot more as to why, but, but I really want us to understand we never had to have this app in the first place, Indeed. which is a big problem, right? Like for a government to say it's a pandemic, everyone is scared, do this under emergency measures, but that wasn't even really being uh, explained well or properly. Well, now, especially in view of the fact, and we had a, a medical update from our top people in the, the health department here in BC yesterday, Bianca, and almost 92% of British Columbians have received the basic two-shot vaccination. That's a pretty enormous percentage of the population. So let's deal with that as a fact first and include it uh, in going forward in this discussion of the Arrive Can app. Uh, it, it's a control measure. This is a federal government that is obsessed with control. We're not to be trusted. We need adult supervision. And this is their way of exercising yet another layer of supervision over private Canadian citizens allegedly in a free country. That's my kind of extremist sounding take, Bianca, but that's what I see it as being nothing other than more from the control freaks in Ottawa. 
Well, let's take that position and apply it more broadly to the pandemic response. So I'm going to say $25 million went into this app. In terms of what it's doing for our public health response, I'm in Ontario in the seventh wave. Mm -hmm. The things that we know work, ventilation, masking, you know, making sure people get money to stay home if they need to. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff we know works, yet somehow... We are prioritizing and investing in technologies that fundamentally do not even serve the response. And if you look at the history of where we are, I don't see efficacy here. I don't see this doing what you would need to, you know, say, here's a control. Back to your word of control. If, if at the border where we have no choice, there's mandatory, highly surveillance technology being applied. I would expect that the Public Health Agency of Canada is out here with us making a very clear case as to how this is proportional and necessary. I don't see that happening. I'm barely hearing from public health anymore. Now what I'm hearing is we're modernizing the border. Well, and, and we're also, at, at the same time, of course, com- considerably, and Beth Potter, the Tourism Industry Association of Canada CEO, was on to something. We, Walt Judas, her counterpart here in British Columbia, has said virtually the same thing on this show uh, several times in the last few months with respect to this app. It really is a hindrance. It does not... Uh, well, look at Pearson. You're in Toronto. It's right up there, just just outside of town, Bianca. And it's it's mm-hmm. become it's become not a national, Bianca. Pearson Airport in Toronto, Canada, has become an international joke because of this because of its inability to cope with volume, among other things, and of course, all of the complications from understaffed airlines and all the rest of it is 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 uh, exacerbated by this extra label later layer rather of bureaucracy that is really uh, it, it takes a, a, a check-in that normally runs about 30 to 40 seconds to up to four to five minutes and that's an enormous delay when you multiply it by hundreds of thousands of people isn't it it is but i'm gonna take an argument i'm making here and flip take the flip side of that argument okay. which is even if this app was making the airports go faster, I would say it shouldn't be here, nor should it be mandatory. Because what we need to consider is not just efficiency, but equity. And I'm going to tell you how I learned about this app. Multiple people in my life said to me, hey, my phone doesn't even work with this app, or I'm pretty stressed out. And now I'm jumbling around with a technology that I'm not comfortable with. Or I don't really understand what I'm consenting to. Mm -hmm. I've had multiple people, you know, share that with me. When the government launched this app in 2020, never mind where we are right now, they knew that a percentage of the population, first of all, doesn't have access easily to a smartphone or to the Internet. True. And they did it anyway. Mm -hmm. And the public service has to provide service options for everybody. That's what governments have to do. So, you know, in terms of whether this is working well or not, it doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is we need to have choices. If we're comfortable with that kind of technology, okay, that's not everybody. And so there's another path here, which is, well, this should be voluntary. You want to get involved with this app or this technology? Okay. Mm -hmm. What about the rest of us who don't? Because just generally speaking, another thing people I don't think know very much about right now, we are under a quarantine act. This is emergency powers. What's happening with the information that's collected, whether it's through an app or not right now, There's not even a requirement 
to tell you how it's being used. That's the Quarantine Act. Okay, so this is not light, like emergency power. People need to understand this. We are still in a pandemic. The federal government is using an emergency power right now, and they should not be compelling or mandating the use of technology. That's just absolutely off. Well, it's, it's wrong. And there's there's a there's a, a, a you use the word compelling, and I'm glad you did because there is there's the, another dimension to this, which uh, is if you are uncooperative or you don't have access to the technology required or for whatever reason you don't submit a fully a fully filled out arrive can app when you arrive at a canadian border that here's your quarantine point bianca the mm-hmm. uh, the canadian border services agency is within its powers to to say you need to quarantine for 14 days because you can't provide proof of vaccination you haven't filled out the arrive can app you can be punished at the border for this yeah And on top of that, it's funny that we're talking in some cases very narrowly about an app. It came out the other day that the government is using an algorithm of some sort to select who's getting random testing. Mm -hmm. And they said in the article, yeah, we would we would admit that, you know, people coming from countries with lower vaccination rate or other factors may be sampled more highly. So not only to what you said, which is punitive, it also brings us back to equity. These, these, you know, whether it's testing or anything else, it's not being applied across the population in the same way. So these are all known factors where there's discriminatory and punitive elements that are happening through technologies. And what the government has done and is doing, which I think this is where we really need to hold them accountable. And it's public health candidate. It's not. We're talking a lot about borders and speed and tourism, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. But the rationale here which is something we need to keep a very strong hold on, is we're in a pandemic, so we have to do very extraordinary measures, like implement mandatory surveillance technology. Mm -hmm. That is not something you do lightly, and if you do it, you better have a good reason, and you better be clear about it. I don't know about you, I'm not hearing that rationale from the government. And they have a really easy thing they could have done from day one, which is not make this mandatory. Mm-hmm. So I just want to be super clear because I know some people listen and they think, I used the app, it was fine. And I'm like, okay, if you feel empowered and you understand what you're consenting to, good for you, great. That's not everybody. It's not, not by a long shot, right? So this should not be mandatory. Not at all. Well, I'm going to leave it right there because you've made my point about 14 times over, and I'm delighted to, to have you take a few moments out of your weekend to, to join us and make it, Bianca. It's a pleasure to have you on side, and I'd like the opportunity to speak to you again because this is far from over. The, the, the fight on the other side of the border has just begun. Thanks very much for this. Thanks, Sterling, and let's hold them accountable. You bet. We had some very important meetings of the Assembly of First Nations in Vancouver this week with some very controversial uh, resolutions being passed, uh, some infighting going on, some rather dramatic resolutions. And at the end of the day, the Assembly of First Nations will undergo a financial review as requested by Roseanne Archibald, who had been, well, there was an attempt to ouster her. Uh, She survived that attempt and indeed was able to not only survive the attempt to throw her out, but also to 
impress upon the assembly the need for an audit. And here to talk about the meetings and what the financial review might produce and who in Ottawa might be best positioned in the future to deal with improving the lot of First Nations in Canada is our next guest who is joining us from Edmonton. Melissa Mbarki is a First Nations policy analyst at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and has uh, written an article uh, s- suggesting Pierre Polyev might be that best candidate of the future to deal with Indigenous Canadians' matters. Melissa, joining us from Edmonton today, good morning and welcome to our show. Thanks for inviting me, and good morning to you as well. Well, it's great to have you with us, Melissa. Now, let's, before you get to the, the, the article you wrote in the, the post-media papers of the nation a few days ago, uh, endorsing Mr. Poiliev, let's talk first of all, though, about the outcome of the AFN meetings here in Vancouver and the need for transparency, which is why you, you're able to connect that with the Poiliev campaign. But let's talk about the meetings here in Vancouver first. What was your takeaway after it was all over? I'm really happy that the Chiefs decided to vote um, for transparency. You know, this was kind of how it all got started. And I 100% don't agree with giving four staff or four regional managers, you know, a total of $1 million um, when that money could be used for something like clean water. And, you know, reserves are suffering right now. And we need to focus on the people and what the needs are at this point. Melissa, when uh, Justin Trudeau assumed power following the Harper government, he cancelled an order, uh, uh, an act created by and brought into legislation by the Harper government. And I don't recall the name or the number of the bill, but the content was essentially this. If you're receiving taxpayer dollars from the people of Canada, they have a right to know how those taxpayer dollars are spent on your reserves. When Mr. Trudeau came to power, he canceled that saying it was humiliating for First Nations residents to have to be accountable. What did you make of that? What we're seeing in our communities today is question, like what we're having are a lot of questions in terms of where this money is going. So it's not just the federal government at one point that wanted transparency. It's also the people on the reserve. No want transparency. Yeah. And, and if you go into Facebook, anybody can go onto Facebook. There are so many groups out there that are questioning how their leaders are spending money. And they're questioning, you know, why is this going to their salary versus people in the community? So we want this just as much as the federal government did prior to 2015. And it really makes me question why Trudeau canceled this in the first place. You know, we were going down a road of, you know, making everyone accountable. And all of a sudden that was kiboshed. So it leaves way more questions and you know it it has people digging in all directions when it's so easy to produce a annual report of how your expenditures were what you did with your expenditures for that year and the 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 sentiment or at least some of the sentiments rolling around in the aisles outside the convention center here in vancouver at the afn meetings were that the people who were least favorable about being transparent about where all that money goes were the people most behind trying to throw out Roseanne Archibald, who was insisting on transparency. 
that's exactly true. You know, we didn't quite get the entire picture until this meeting happened. Like, we didn't know who, we didn't know why. But after the general, after they went through their AGM, you know, it became clear where the bottlenecks were. And we need to address that now. You know, we need to look at why they're trying to um, not be you know, forthcoming with expenses. Like, we need to know these answers because we're not, you know, we're not going to change anything until, you know, we see change from above. And it starts at the top and then it trickles down and we want to see that change happen. Yeah, and Melissa, at the same time, though, as all of this infighting is going on and there's this uh, hard, hardcore group that, that wants uh, Archibald out, they don't want any in, in intrusive uh, poking around the numbers. They, they're, they're their numbers and leave us alone. At the same time as this infighting is going on, there's a youth delegation that addresses the assembly and says, look, can we get over this? Can we set the egos and the transparency issues? Can we just resolve this? Because look at what's going on on the country's reserves right now. We have among the world's highest suicide rates, especially for reserves up north. You grew up on a, on a reserve, Melissa. You know what these kids are talking about. What, did you, what was your reaction to their uh, intervention, if you will, at the convention yesterday? It was very touching to hear them speak. And, you know, they're speaking from experience and they're also speaking about experiences that I've gone through and they are 100% correct in the suicide rates in the child and family incarceration rates Mm -hmm. violence you know like they touched on issues that we all grew up with and these are issues that AFN is not focused on you know this should be at the top of their priority list and it's not And I just don't understand how an organization like this, you know, could have gone for so long without being questioned or without saying, okay, you exist. Why are there still boil water advisors? Why are there still, you know, high suicide rates? Like, what are you doing? What exactly are you lobbying for? And I've always been critical of them because I, you know, I sometimes don't know why they're there. You know, why not give that authority back to the tribal councils who work with the provinces? You know, this would make more sense. But, you know, there needs to be some regroup that needs to happen in order for it to work for First Nations in Canada. Indeed. Now, let's talk about the other thing that you came to our attention by this week, an article you wrote in the nation's newspapers, basically saying Indigenous Canadians need a federal leader like Pierre Polyev. So what is it about Mr. Polyev that uh, you find particularly attractive as a First Nations Canadian? What's different about Pierre from other candidates or other politicians? He's not afraid to question things. You know, if we look at the wheat parity and we look at, you know, the way he questioned and, you know, held the government accountable for a huge amount of money that went to them. And, you know, it was it he stayed on point the entire time. He didn't waver from it. And this is something that we need in Indigenous communities. You know, we need to start asking those hard questions of why we don't have clean water Where's the red tape? Mm-hmm. How can we remove it? How can we move forward? And how can we get to zero water advisories? Is it possible? You know, nobody is asking these questions. And we need somebody who has his, you know, he's very headstrong and he's 
pushes forward on things that he's passionate about. And hopefully, you know, Indigenous issues can be on his radar so we can actually see progress. And speaking of progress, Melissa, and I have to let you go after this, but I'm, I'm delighted you're able to join us this morning to bring this perspective to the conversation. How, uh, in, in terms of progress, are you expecting the AFN to go forward with this forensic audit and eventually come forward with their findings? And, and, and do you expect that to be as rapid as possible, or are they going to play a dance around the bush for as long as they can? I think they'll go through with the audit. You know, I don't know if they'll go as far back as 10 years, the way Roseanne wants, but I definitely think we'll get answers in the more current, um, like I would say, in the last three or so years. Okay. Um, the thing I'm questioning, though, um, you know, is she, like, Terry Bellegarde was in this position prior to her. So is she questioning the doings that he has done previously? Like, is that kind of the road that we're going on? Um, You know, did we see him do things that were um, questionable along the way? Because she was a chief before in Ontario, so she would have had inner workings with him. Mm. Um, So I I think we're going to get answers for the more current years, like maybe in the last two or three as far as 10 years, I think that's going to drag on. Right. Well, at least it'll at least be a good start, and we'll start peeling back some of the layers and get a real a fix on what's going on. Uh, that is the, so, uh, there's so much struggle being kept or uh, being made these days uh, to, see, to have us not see that, that it makes us even more curious, don't you think? Definitely does. It she raised a lot of questions. I mean, a lot of people on the grassroots level are now listening and following this. So they're going to have to follow through, whether they want to or not, because we're watching them. Indeed. There's the old Shakespeare line, methinks thou dost protest too much. <laughs> Always a clue. <laughs> Melissa Embarkey in Edmonton, thanks very much for this. Great to have you on our program. I look forward to an opportunity to speak to you again. And I look forward to coming back on. Have yourself a wonderful day. Our next guest uh, was quoted in the Times Colonist a few days ago as saying people are going to the U.S. for their fourth COVID shot. Eligibility is limited in British Columbia. While since the publication of that story and the headline, the government of British Columbia, in fact, in yesterday's press conference, has some kind of recommendation for a fall COVID-19 booster campaign. Is that adequate? Our guest is Dr. Eric Kadesky, family doctor, associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine at UBC, and the former president of the Doctors of British Columbia. Dr. Kadeski, good morning, sir. Uh, good morning to you. Thank you so much for the invitation to talk about Well, it's good to have you with us, Dr. Kadeski. Uh, the, the, the government of British Columbia had a press conference yesterday afternoon, uh, perhaps in response to headlines like the one you were attributed to, contributing to a few days before, about the fact that more and more of us are planning that fourth COVID shot and frustration at a lack of receiving an invitation has driven many British Columbians, your point, to leave the province and get a shot in Bellingham or somewhere like that. Exactly. I think a lot of people feel caught because, uh, as we know, 60% of British Columbians have had their third shot. They've been told to do it every six months. They keep hearing that protection against Omicron is about four months. And even if you've had the infection, your protection is only about two months after that. And so being told to wait longer, I think, was causing a lot of anxiety for people who see that uh, there are still lots of effects 
from this particular strain, which is very contagious. Indeed. And Dr. Kadeski, the other thing that the government didn't touch with a 10-foot pole during its long press conference yesterday was the fact that in other Canadian jurisdictions, one thinks of Ontario to begin with, uh, people under the age of 70 have been perfectly able to go get that fourth booster at their own convenience for many, many weeks. That is not the case in British Columbia. We know about what's going on in other provinces. Perhaps that's feeding some of the frustration you're hearing on the front lines. I I think for us, as much as we talk about uh, Canada having a unified system, we've always had multiple tiers. And one of those tiers has been the border that we share with America. And I've had patients since the beginning, even before the first vaccines were available in Canada, who were flying to the States because the land border was closed, Mm -hmm. who fly to the States, even sometimes chartering a plane to go down and get those first two doses before they're even available here. So now seeing the toll that Omicron is taking and how prevalent it is, it's no surprise that people are wanting to go down and get themselves protected for the fourth shot. And as well, don't forget that in the States now, children six months and above can now receive both the Pfizer or or the Moderna vaccine, whereas in Canada, neither one has even been approved yet. That's right. Uh, as far as the uh, the Omicron itself, the, the variant that we're experiencing right now, the consensus among scientists seems to be that it's going to peak sometime next month. Are you on side with that? Uh, the, the one thing that we've learned from this is that it's, it's completely unpredictable, and that's why uh, it's, it's very, very difficult to, to say. We can always try our best with the models that we have, but we've learned that the best thing to do is to protect ourselves in so many different ways, washing our hands, wearing masks, being outside and keeping distance. And, of course, getting the vaccine when it's available to us. Indeed, yesterday's press conference, and I watched most of it, it took 28 minutes from the beginning of the press conference uh, featuring the minister and a couple of doctors for someone to finally get around to saying, if you're under 70 and you're feeling particularly anxious about your uh, uh, inability to get that fourth shot before you receive your formal invitation, now you can call a number and make arrangements to get that shot took 28 minutes into the press conference to even get to that point after congratulating themselves endlessly for doing a swell job. Uh, and a lot of people, I think they're going to be surprised, Dr. Kadeski, on Monday morning when that phone line starts to, to ring from people like many who have approached you uh, expressing those frustrations. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, good, good for doctors Balam and Lavoie and health minister to to get out in front and, and address some of the information gaps that are out there and, and give the rationale that they want this to coincide with the fall virus season. They want people to wait for these bivalent vaccines that will address the new Omicron strain as well as some of the previous ones. What I'm hearing from people is they still want to know more about what the supply is like. Right. They want to know when our supply is expiring. And for most people, when they talk to me, they'll hear about this recommendation to wait until the fall, but they really want the bird in the hand. And in this case, it's the shot in the arm as soon as possible. Indeed. And and as far as supplies, uh, Dr. Kadeski, we're hearing about certain uh, amounts of COVID vaccine expiring within a few weeks, another uh, batch expiring within a few months. And I suppose that compounds the frustrations of some British Columbians going, wait a second, you're going to start throwing stuff out and I'm still not able to get my fourth shot. How do you score? Wear that circle. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, in general, despite some some of the behaviors that we've seen during the uh, the the pandemic with uh, certain convoys that shall not be named, <laughs> overall, British Columbians have behaved very, very well, and they've stepped aside to say, if there's someone else who needs 
this vaccine, which is in limited supply, they should go in line in front of me. But I think what most people are saying is, tell me that that's the case. Tell me that we don't have enough and I will wait or I'll find something in a different supply. And I think having that information would help to assuage some of the concerns that most British Columbians have. Indeed, Minister Dix yesterday talked about a million four, 1.4 million British Columbians who have yet to have that third shot, the first of the boosters. Why do you suspect that? I mean, they're not against vaccinations. They've had two shots. What's the hesitancy, rather, on the booster, do you think? I mean, I start to see things in different groups. There's the one group, the 60%, that want as the doses when they've been told they want to stay up to date, they're behaving well, they understand the concern. Then there's the small group who are either anti-vaccine or more likely vaccine hesitant because of the rampant uh, and intentional disinformation that uh, that's out there. And then you have this other group who, quite frankly, are just fatigued. We're over two years into this. Uh, we We've had a lot of constraints put on our lifestyles. And for them, they've been told by the Canadian government that two, dose, two doses is, is fully vaccinated. True. And, and it's for them, they just they don't have the mental energy for it. It's been emotionally exhausting for all of us. And I think that for those people, they would do it. But you know, it's difficult for them to be on high alert all the time because that's just so emotionally taxing, and we've all felt it. Yeah, Dr. Kadeski, is that sort of hesitancy dangerous in the wake of a, of an, a rising variant in our midst? I mean, the vaccine hesitancy and the disinformation has taken a terrible toll. I mean, I've seen families torn apart where, where parents disagree on it, and you have some one parent who's gone down the rabbit holes of social media, and they've been persuaded by these very slick and professional uh, videos uh, and other messages that plant the seeds of doubt, and the parents are fighting over what to do with their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, on the grander scale, that means that there's some families that literally, uh, I've had parents say to me, I, I can't vaccinate my children because I'm, I'm, I'm concerned as to what the ramifications will be because it has touched such an emotional nerve the way that people are being manipulated, often for profit, and the results here have been lower vaccination rates than what we would otherwise expect were people to be behaving rationally. And interesting, just further to your point about families torn asunder by the argument going on, we've had divorce lawyers on our program recently, Dr. Kadeski, who would support your your analysis to to uh, to the nth degree. Uh, the, the, certainly the, the conflict coming from that domestically has been pretty intense. Unfortunately, I, I see it. I see it every day. And, you know, as someone whose who's life goal is to improve the health of, of others, you know, it, it really, really feels like a Sisyphusian task to continually be pushing against people who have millions of dollars of resources because of the profits that they make from people buying their vitamins or clicking on their videos. Uh, and the problem is that these profits are coming on the backs of, of people who are going to put themselves at increased risk of being sick. Because- Indeed. Dr. Kadeski, to your original point, and Minister Dix was very quick to, to go to the number, uh, it turns out that 91 plus percent of British Columbians have had the all-important second dose. So in terms of uh, herd immunity, that term that was uh, so loosely tossed around a couple of years ago, something elusive that we might get to at some distant point in the future. Are we there? Uh, the, the idea of herd immunity as being the way out of this, I think, has been disproven. I think what we need to do is to get as many people vaccinated as, as possible, keep that up, because the variants are, are, are happening. 
Some of them are quite elusive in terms of previous vaccines, in terms of the timelines of how long the protection lasts for. So rather than saying there's a certain percentage we need and then we can sit back, I think we just have to continue being vigilant as difficult and as emotionally taxing as that is. Absolutely. Dr. Kadeski, so much. Uh, We're very grateful for you this morning. I'm going to yield to my competition in your home and turn you over to your family on a Saturday morning. We do thank you for giving us a few minutes, though. Thank you. We, We all thank you in return, and I wish everyone a wonderful weekend. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.